Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 28th, 2017. On today's show, we'll be taking a look at some Venom casting. Deadly Class, the comic book, is coming to Sci-Fi Channel by way of the Russo Brothers. We're going to be talking about Apple's foray into original programming for television. Uh, we'll be talking about Hocus Pocus 2 and the Avatar sequels, which are now in production. With me on today's show are Slash Film writers Ben Pearson... Hey, what's up? And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Let's get into the news because there's actually some news to talk about today. Um, Venom had uh, some casting announced. or it's, it's not casting announced. I guess they are looking at Michelle Williams, the star opposite of uh, Tom Hardy in the Venom movie. Uh, so she hasn't uh, been officially signed on yet. She's in talks. But this is kind of surprising because um, I didn't expect someone of her caliber to want to be involved in a comic book movie. Uh, if you look at Michelle Williams, uh, her filmography, the list, uh, it's almost all in- – well, you know, early in her career, she did some stuff like Lassie and a Halloween movie. but And then she did, you know, Dawson's Creek. And then after that, she made almost all exclusively interesting decisions – um, the only movie that I think is probably the standout, uh, you know, blockbuster movie is the uh, Oz the Great and Powerful. And I, I think she signed on to that because of Sam Raimi. So um, it's, it's interesting that she would be interested in this production. Uh, Chris, what do you think of uh, Michelle Williams possibly being involved in a uh, Spider-Man less Spider-Verse movie? It's definitely surprising. Uh I can only guess that either it has a really good script or she really wants a really good paycheck. It's those are my two guesses under why she's interested in doing this because it's true. It doesn't seem like a typical film for her, or maybe she just wants to do something different. Maybe she wants like a, she's so tired of doing, you know, very serious indie film. She wants to maybe stretch herself and do something fun and, you know, comic booky for a change. Yeah, and um, this film also has some other A-list ta- talent. Has Emmy award-winning actor Riz Ahmed. Um, 
Zombieland uh, director Ruben Fleischer is the one directing it. Uh, he hasn't had a hit, I think, since Zombieland. Um, I don't know. It's just very interesting. You can read uh, HT's full article on this on SlashFilm.com. Uh, and we'll be uh, following this uh, because I am so interested and baffled by this, uh, you know, S- Sony's decision to go forward with this, you know, Spider-Man less spider-verse and um spider-man less venom movie sounds horrible to me but it seems like they're making all the right decisions thus far so we'll have to see um another comic book property is coming to the small screen and that is deadly class it has earned a sci-fi pilot uh coming from the russo brothers the directors of the avengers movies or avengers sequels it should be said um chris you wrote the article for slash what do we know uh, yeah, so this is based on the image image comic series Deadly Class, where it's set in the most brutal high school on Earth, where the world's top crime families send the next generation of assassins to be trained, which sounds kind of interesting. It kind of sounds like uh, a battle royale in a way. I mean, I haven't read the comics, so I don't know that much about it, but sci-fi is pretty much, for their 25th anniversary, they've sort of rebooted themselves and they're... They're trying to sign on more and more TV series. Like they just uh, greenlit a, a George R. R. Martin series, and they have Krypton, the, the Superman. I guess it's about Superman's grandparents this time. That series, yeah, it's set on Krypton. Um, what, right. what is Deadly Class about? Do we know? Uh, it's like I said, it's set in the this high school where uh, like crime families send their children <laughs> to be trained to be assassins. And it's uh, the the THR story. It came from it reports. It's about a disillusioned teen recruited into a storied high school for assassins, maintaining his moral code while surviving a ruthless curriculum. Vicious social cliques and his own adolescent uncertainties may prove fatal. And it's set uh, against the backdrop of the 80s culture. I, I have read the first couple issues of this comic a long time ago, whenever it first came out. And I remember enjoying it, and I um, actually have a couple of the trades waiting to be read. But like everything else, I don't have the time. Um, but I remember thinking while I was reading, I was like, this could make a good television series. Um, I could definitely see it as a sci-fi or CW show. And sci-fi, I guess, makes sense, especially with them doing like, you know, the magicians and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, let's move on, though, to another uh, company uh, making original TV program, Apple is setting their sights on Steven Spielberg, Reese Witherspoon, and more. Ben, you wrote the article for SlashFilm.com. What do we know? So right now, uh, Apple is sort of testing the waters w- as far as uh, original television programming. They haven't fully jumped in yet, and we don't even really know what an Apple original television show is going to look like or or how it's going to be distributed yet. Uh, but uh, Apple hired a couple of former Sony employees to basically lead their content acquisitions team. And these employees, uh, Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlicht, are going all around Hollywood and taking meetings with all th- sorts of people and looking for the next big Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, The Crown type of show. Uh, they apparently were very close to locking down that uh 
One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest prequel show Ratchet, which we talked about a little while ago from Ryan Murphy, but that one ended up going to Netflix. But as of right now, uh, Apple has bid on a modern version of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, which was an anthology series that he created that ran on NBC from 1985 to 1987. Have you ever seen that show? No, I haven't. Have you? It was very good. Um, I think it's available on DVD, probably available on iTunes and and stuff. So I, I would highly recommend it to anybody who has not seen it. Yeah, taking a look at the list of talent that he managed to get at the time, the, just the director list alone is insane. He's got Scorsese and Joe Dante and uh, Bob Balaban, Irvin Kirshner, Robert Zemeckis, uh, Toby Hooper. I mean, it's like a who's who of people who were you know up and coming and established directors at that time. So I was saying that, yeah, if, if Apple were able to get an anthology series like this uh early on in their run in their TV, you know, trying to make a big splash in the TV um, landscape, it would be a good way for them to recruit similarly high profile talent to come over just, you know, to direct one episode and it wouldn't be too much of a time commitment for people. So that would be cool. I do have a question. Do you think an anthology series can work in today's, you know, world? Like, you know, the, the TV market has changed. It's all about serialized, not episodic stories. And, you know, M. Night couldn't, uh, notoriously couldn't get Tales from the Crypt off the ground as a reboot. Um, so I'm just wondering, do you think anthology stories, like, have a place on t- today's television? I think so. I think Black Mirror sort of proves that it's possible and able to thrive. And that's another good example of a a show that has been able to recruit big name talent that time in front of the camera. Um, You know, they've got a bunch of great actors, John Hamm and Donald Gleason and a ton of different people to come and, you know, just star in one episode, basically. Um, And I think partially maybe that sort of um, splintered attention span might actually help anthology series in the long run because you don't have to devote that much time. You can just sort of check in here and there and like have it as your, you know, third or fourth option as something that you're watching regularly and you don't really have to uh, it's not necessarily must see like appointment television, yeah. but um, but you know I, I think there's definitely a place for it. For some reason, Black Mirror completely slipped my mind when I asked that question. But <laughs> um, I don't know. I was kind of thinking like, wouldn't it be interesting if you know the new anthology television idea is to do seasons, like kind of like they do with American Horror Story, where like this you know amazing stories might not be each episode is directed by a different person. But it's each season is a different story. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I guess they're already doing that, so that's not a uh, a new idea. But w- w- that would be al- cool, though. What else is uh, Apple considering? Yeah. So the only other project that they have uh, confirmed to have bid on right now is a partnership between Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston. They are going to reunite on TV for the first time since they played sisters, I believe, on Friends back in the day. And they are working on a show about TV morning shows. And there's not really a ton of information about that show that's out there uh, as of yet but like it doesn't have a title for example but um that would be for apple i think a big coup locking down two major stars in a show especially with reese witherspoon sort of um having a lot of heat coming off of big little lies recently so uh yeah we'll have to i'll keep you guys posted with uh apple's movement uh in this uh territory 
I just think it's so odd. I, I just don't see Apple being able to become to, to position themselves as a, you know, creator of original TV programming on the same level that Netflix and Amazon are doing. Yeah, this this piece from Hollywood Reporter says that a lot of the um, producers and, you know, people who are like putting these packages together, these TV packages that could potentially go out to different networks and stuff are already looking at Apple sort of being on the same level as HBO and Netflix just because of the pedigree of what they've done in the tech space. So um, I think people just, you know, they know the name brand and they recognize that um, Apple is not going to. I think a big part of it, too, is that you mentioned earlier, Peter, in a previous episode of the show, how much capital, how much cash Apple as a company has. I think it's like $260 billion or something. Yeah. So I think right now the estimates are they're looking at spending at least $1 billion for their first year of original programming. So these producers and stuff are looking to you know get involved with that as, uh, as quickly as possible. I, they don't just buy netflix at this point they have enough money to do it and it would not even hurt their pocketbook you know they would still have enough money to left over to be one of the richest companies out there um i don't know what the what the fall of the story um a movie sequel that we never thought would happen might happen hocus pocus 2 uh is developing chris you're at the story for slash.com what do we know uh, yeah, so Mick Garris, who uh, co-wrote the original film, he's also directed a lot of uh, Stephen King direct-for-TV adaptations. He did, like, the, the TV version of The Shining. Um, he did an interview with Forbes, and the question came up, basically, you know, for years, fans have wanted a sequel to this movie. Is it ever going to happen? And according to him, it is happening, and he's heard rumors that they're developing a script and it'll probably be on TV, probably for the Disney Channel or ABC. And that's what he says. So I, we'll see. I mean, there's always been rumors about this. Uh, the cast have talked about it over the years. And for a while, they were saying basically as much as they want it to happen, it probably isn't happening. But Mick Garris says it is. Yeah. I mean, th- this is the latest in the, you know, that 90s nostalgia boom. Uh, hitting us uh, we had power rangers ninja turtles um it's interesting you know disney world has had a show in the last couple of years that their that their halloween events starring the the three sisters from the hocus pocus movies um so it seems like there is an increased interest in seeing a sequel i almost think that they should they should do a theatrical event uh i think tv is a bit small. I, th- I think there's a lot of uh, people who were kids during the 90s that are now adults with kids that would take their kids to see in Hocus Pocus, you know, legacy equal in theaters. But um, uh, on to another sequel. Uh, the Avatar sequels are finally in production and they have revealed the first look at Jake and Natari's kids. Ben, you wrote this article for Slash Film. What do, what do we know about Jake and Nateria's kids? So we know that the Sully family has grown by three since we last checked in with them in 2009's Avatar. It seems crazy that Avatar came out in 2009, just thinking about like how long ago that was and how long it's going to be until we see the new one, which I think Avatar 2 comes out in 2020. So that's a huge gap. Um, but yes, uh, the, so Jake and Nateria... 
the Navi lovers have, have birthed um, three children. So there's a firstborn son, a secondborn son, and a youngest daughter. Uh, Entertainment Weekly and uh, Fox have sort of released uh, the names of the actors who are going to be playing these kids. I'm not going to go through them because you're not going to recognize any of their names because they haven't really been in much before. Um, they've released the names of the characters that they're going to be playing, and they all are like Neytiri. Like the son is named Neytaim. Uh, one of the other don't, don't worry, Ben. You don't have to read yeah. these names. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you can go to slashfilm.com and uh, and find out these names. And we, we we've been told for a long time by James Cameron that this was going to be more of a story about their family. Uh, yes. These photos look very much. If you told me this photo, I think someone tweeted at me that this looks like a Disney Channel stock photo from the 1990s. Yeah. And that's what it looks like to me. I mean, they're standing in Avatar Land in Disney World, but. Um, Yes. And, uh, and you know, obviously they're going to look way different. We have a couple pictures of the kids uh, in this article that you can check out, but they're going to look way different. They're going to be, you know, fully CG'd uh, motion capture performances. And I was talking with HT about this uh, offline. Like she was sort of lamenting the fact that these kids, you know, feeling bad for them that they were going to be, um, you know, forced to do this motion capture stuff so early on in their careers. And I was saying I was sort of commiserating uh, with that idea with her. And then I was like, oh, well, maybe it'll, it'll actually be like good training for them moving forward because motion capture is going to be, um, you know, it's only going to become more prevalent in the coming years. So maybe they'll become more employable by being in these movies this early. And uh, Chris, you did a story on the Avatar sequels yesterday that got a lot of flack. Had the headline, <laughs> those Avatar sequels you're not looking forward to will cost over $1 billion to make. Yes. I, I, I think the headlines obviously jo in all fun, you know, it, it, right. it's, yeah, it's not, uh, I mean, there was a lot of people that thought it was overly cynical for a slash film, but I thought it wasn't fun. But, uh, <laughs> what, what did we learn about the, the price tag of the avatar sequels? Right. So James Cameron, he's not just shooting one avatar sequel. He's shooting four and he's shooting them all at once. Basically it's one huge production. That's how he's, He's talking about it. So instead of just shooting one and the other, he's thinking of it as one big uh, film in a way. But yeah. kind, that's of how, kind of like how they shot the Hobbit uh, trilogy, which was right. only two films. But usually you do this kind of thing to save money. Right. <laughs> and for and in this case, that's not the case where it's going to cost over over one billion dollars. And that's just a rough estimate. I mean, there's always a chance that it'll you know the production could drag on longer than intended i mean you know it, it's shocking that we're even here now because they've been talking about starring these films for a long time now so that just it just seems like the nature of how cameron is working on these films just seems like there's a chance it will go over schedule it will go over budget so it might end up you know ballooning over one billion who knows and that's a lot of money so Every time you say that, I just picture Austin Powers or Doctor Evil from Austin <laughs> Powers, and uh, this is this is a comical SNL sketch sket that somehow has become reality, guys. Yes, um, I also do not believe that we're ever going to see these Avatar sequels. I don't care that they're in production. I don't care that we're seeing pictures of these kids. I just don't believe it's happening. But uh, I'll believe it's happening when I actually am in the theater and twenty. What 2020. year? 2020. 2020. 
Yeah. Who knows if we'll even be alive in 2020? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, that's it for the the film news. Let's get to the mailbag. Every day on the podcast, we try to answer a question sent in from you, the listeners. Uh, you can send your questions to peter at slash com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention them on the air. Today, Amy from New York City asks, are there films that you enjoyed or understood more after the, a second viewing uh thanks um i'll start this one off um there's a film i've mentioned previously on the podcast and it's a film that came out at the 2004 sundance film festival it's a film called primer and it's a, a time travel movie drama yeah time travel indie time travel drama and i i don't think anybody probably has seen this film one time and understood it. I I probably have seen it. I want to say six or seven times at this point, and I'm not quite sure I have a grasp of it completely. But every single time I see it, uh, it does make that experience more rewarding, and I do feel like I do understand it more. Um, it has a lot of timelines going on and a lot of. Uh, very complicated things. It, it almost feels like a movie that was created by a like a mathematician or something, um, and it's uh, it's awesome. I, I really admire the film a lot. It's a film that was made for I think like a dozen thousand dollars or something, and it was shot <laughs> on film. Uh, you know, not in the hundreds of thousands, but the you know near ten thousand dollars range. I think, um, and. Uh, have either of you seen Primer? Yes. Yes, I have too. And uh, I'm in the same boat where uh, it probably took me six or seven times. I think I just rewatched it a year ago. And when I rewatched it this year ago for the seventh time, it was like, oh, I finally get what this, what this movie's about. <laughs> I fi- it took me a few years, but I fi- it, like everything finally clicked into place. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, we, we make this sound so bad because you, you have to see it six times before you'll get it. <laughs> but um i i highly recommend it and it's a uh it's a film i like to show people which is probably why i've seen it you know six or seven times uh and i'm not a person that i don't consider myself a dumb uh moviegoer like you know you see these uh infographics diagramming how inception is working and i'm like does someone not understand how inception works it seemed very clear to me how inception works or how interstellar works or, you know, all this stuff. But, uh, primer is very much a head scratcher in, in, in that respect. Uh, Ben, how about one of yours? So I'm going to go with the fountain Darren Aronofsky's movie. Um, this one is one that I liked when I first saw it, but I think it, it hit me on a much more emotional, uh, plateau the second time. And in all subsequent viewings, I've really sort of fallen in love with this movie. It's actually the number 11 choice on my favorite movies of all time list that I wrote for SlashFilm.com, so you can check that out there. Uh, this movie is all about death and forgiveness and the sort of um, meditation on loss that Hugh Jackman's character has to go through. Uh, Rachel Weisz plays his wife. And there are multiple time periods. You know, it spans millennia. It's a very complicated movie. And um, it's a lot to sort of process the first time. But once you sort of get on its wavelength, um, the, the visuals are so breathtaking. And I think 
Hugh Jackman delivers one of the best performances that he's ever done in his entire career. And I think uh, all of that sort of comes together. And when it does finally click, it's a really, really special movie. So um, that's one that I know a lot of people have seen once and just sort of, um, you know, disconnected from and just sort of walked away going like, "Ah, I don't really I don't really know about that movie. But I think I would encourage people if you've only seen it once or if you've never seen it at all. Um, definitely check it out and, and maybe give it a rewatch because I think it uh, rewards uh, multiple viewings. Definitely. I, I think there's a lot of greatness there, but I think um, every time I watch it, I think like what could have been with the Brad Pitt version that was, you know, twice the budget mm-hmm. that was originally supposed to shoot. And uh, because I feel like there's some great ideas there that uh, feel constrained by the budget at times. Um, yeah. One of those great what if moments. Yeah. Chris, how about you? Uh, so I feel like this is like a, a generic pick. We're going to do it anyway, where it's um, Kubrick's 2001, where I saw this film when I was very young because, you know, it was, it's that one film that everyone says, oh, you got to see it. You know, if you love movies, you got to see this. And, so, you know, I saw this when I was young, you know, probably even before I was a teenager. And I just I didn't know what I was even seeing. I just sat there and I was like, it's <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this movie? Like, you know, there's there's long stretches where, you know, there's almost no dialogue at all. And as a kid, that was like mind blowing to me. I was like, are there, are there movies like this where people don't say anything for long stretches of time? And, you know, over the years I would keep trying to revisit it. And, you know, even in my teenage years, I was just sort of like, I don't really, I don't get this. And then as I got older, I I mean, I always appreciated the artistry on display, but I never sort of, got it and then i, I watched it at, you know the older i got the more i started to just realize what a remarkable movie is not just you know on the artistic level just overall just this very huge sweeping story that's literally spanning you know millions of years and uh, and now it's, it's pretty much one of my favorite films but you know when i first saw it i didn't know <laughs> what was going on yeah. <laughs> I think it would be hard for any kid to sit through a movie of that length and with that, uh, you know, the speed of it and the, you know, it's very methodical and very, uh, it's beautiful. But as a kid, I don't think I I connected with that. This is definitely one I agree with you on. Um, For my second pick, I'm going to put Chris Nolan's The Prestige. Um, this is a film that obviously has a big twist to it. Um, it's a movie about magic and magicians in uh, d- decades ago. And, um, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but uh, it, it is a little complex, like any Chris Nolan film, because it's, you know, it's doing t- some time shifting. It's doing some interesting things of what it's showing you and what it isn't. And, um, when I first saw it, I saw it at a press screening in San Francisco. Um, that's a person who, you know, is a magic hobbyist, uh, now a member of the magic castle. Uh, I was huge into magic. I was, I was kind of like confused by it, uh, seeing it the first time and not sure if I liked it. Uh, now it's, uh, definitely probably in my top 25 films of all time. I have, you know, prints of it up, up on my walls. Um, so it, it's definitely been one of those films that uh, I, I think rewards uh, more viewings than just once. 
Definitely. Yeah, I just watched it again for the first time in probably five or six years. And I had forgotten some of like just how intricate some of the plotting was. And I feel like I knew that movie really well around the time that it came out. But because I haven't watched it in so many years, I watched it again. I was like, wait, now, how exactly is this working? And so it's one of those that if you if you put a few years in between viewings, um, it might it might require a little bit of work. But I think I I like the movie because of that even more. And the other thing that should be said about it from a magician's perspective this movie is really nails it because almost every great magic trick or every great uh illusion requires so much more work than anybody would ever anticipate someone going through to do mm-hmm. um and i think uh you know the some of the points of the story are, are going through the elaborate you know process that you know a magician will go to fool people um and i i think it's a yeah it's a it's a great movie um ben what's your next pick so i wanted to quickly mention the sixth sense just because i feel like we would get a ton of emails and stuff like oh why didn't you guys mention the sixth sense that one's like a very obvious choice but it's also a very good choice for a movie that um definitely gives you a a better sense of it the second time around you get to understand more of what m night Shyamalan was doing with colors and um just exactly you know the the um dedication and and sort of uh details that he put into setting this up and the way that he cuts into certain scenes right at a moment where you sort of fill the rest in with your mind on your first time and then the second time you understand the reality of what's going on so that one is a really great film but the second one that i really want to talk about was anchorman and that i don't really have too much to say about that other than uh i love that movie now and maybe actually that movie since the sequel came out has sort of um <laughs> i feel like the sequel has actually lowered my my thoughts of the original a little bit just because i didn't really love the sequel that much but uh i was a huge anchorman fan for a long time and i still love that movie i, I have a print of it on my wall as well but uh but that's one that i didn't quite connect to the first time i saw it that came out in the same summer as dodgeball in 2004 and i remember loving dodgeball uh way more than anchorman at the time but on rewatches the uh, the ratio has has shifted or whatever. Like I, I definitely go back to Anchorman far more, and I think it's uh, a much more ridiculous sort of um, self assured movie than Dodgeball. So it was like a, a rivalry in my mind, and Anchorman has definitely come out on top. But it's taken a few viewings to do that for me. Yeah, well, Anchorman is definitely a movie that is insanely quotable. Um, I think when that came out for the next few years, all my friends were just quoting every other line from that movie. And I want to say about The Sixth Sense is that's a movie that you almost have to see twice in the theater when it came out. Because then you're like, oh, how was Bruce Willis at the table with his wife? I need to. Yeah. How did that, you know, and it's almost like you have to you go back. And I remember seeing it a second time the next night uh, just to kind of piece together, you know, how that change how that twist at the end of the movie impacts the whole story chris how about your last movie all right so my last pick is uh rosemary's baby uh so i'm i'm a big horror fan i was always a big horror fan and that was one of those movies again sort of like 2001 where people were like if you love horror you gotta watch this movie and so i saw that i can't remember how old i was when i saw it, but i saw it and it's not that I didn't get it as much as I just didn't care for it. I was like, I don't see what the big deal is about this. This isn't this isn't for me. And over the years, I sort of just avoided it. And 
I would just hear again and again people just saying, you got to, you know, Rosemary's Baby. It's one of the best horror movies ever made. So I finally gave it another chance a few years ago. And I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention the first time or I was just, again, too young to get it all. But watching it, you know, again, giving it a second chance, it was like a whole new experience for me. And I just appreciated it on a completely different level on how subtle it is and how like it's just slowly becomes more and more unnerving as the film goes on. And I don't know. I just appreciated it so much more the second time I saw it. For all our picks for uh, the, the movies that we enjoyed more on the second viewings uh, as always, please write it to us at uh at slash film daily on Twitter. Tell us what your, uh, picks for this mailbag segment were um, did we miss anything uh, egregiously um, I, I know we had others that didn't make the cut but uh, I, I think I, I feel pretty good about these seven movies um, that we came to a conclusion with um, as always submit your questions peter at slash com. mention your name general geographic location in case we mention them on the air Chris where can we find more of your work uh, cut for film, Nerdist, uh, Slash Film, of course, and just look for me on Twitter. I'm out there. And Ben, where can we find more of you? You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me on Twitter at SlashFilm. You can find all the articles mentioned in this podcast on SlashFilm.com and links in the show notes. You can subscribe to this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Please go rate and review us on iTunes, spread the word, tell your friends, and thanks for listening. Adventure awaits at every turn in Cedar City, Utah. Hike through breathtaking Red Rock Canyons, bike along scenic trails, and catch a show at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. There's so much to discover in Cedar City, Utah. Check out visitcedarcity.com to learn more.